This is Chapter 121 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we travel into the not-too-distant future where reliance on fully autonomous cars backfires big time. We talk to Karen Slaughter about her timely thriller and its especially horrifying twist. Then we learn about a real-life group of misfits who were willing to die for a joke. In The Passengers, the new dystopian thriller from John Mars, you know bad things are in store when a character declares the fully autonomous vehicles prevalent in a future version of post-Brexit Britain can't be hacked. The result is an edge-of-your-seat novel that's been described as speed meets Hunger Games with a touch of Black Mirror. I started off our interview by asking him about the genesis of his story. Um, It was quite simple, really. My editor and I, we were having a little chat about what was going to happen next with one of my, you know, what I was going to write for them next for Penguin over here in the UK. Um, The last book was about finding love through DNA and there was a technology hint to it. Um, And she suggested, well, uh, what do you know about driverless cars? And to be honest, I knew nothing about driverless cars, but it certainly sparked my interest. So uh, after an awful lot of Googling and uh, a lot of like looking at YouTube clips and, and weeks and weeks of reading it and researching it, this idea formed and, um, and the passengers came to be. So the story, as you mentioned, does center around fully autonomous cars. What sort of research did you have to do to make sure that you got all the details of the not too distant future right? A lot of it, as I say, was, was, was Googling it, reading books on it, um, trying to find out what level of driverless cars we are at at the moment, because they're in, they're in five different levels. Um, what, for example, what makes them safe, what makes them make decisions on who, to, you know, on who should live and who should die in a, in a potential fatal accident. Um, there's just so much to it, but even down to how many millions of miles they've been traveling around the world and in all different circumstances to try and get on camera all possible eventualities of weather and how a car can recognize the difference between a traffic light and a tree, everything like that. It's, um, it's, it's You can really immerse yourself in. The story really takes a look at the dark side of, of handing over our trust in lives to technology. How do you really feel about where we're headed in that respect? I am quite excited, if I'm honest. <laughs> I think that it could be fun. I, um, When it comes to the driverless car side of things, I think I'm just lazy. And I'm quite looking forward to watching a, a film or reading a book while I'm in a car and the car takes me from A to B. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to driverless cars, I'm excited about it. Other technology, perhaps I'm a little bit. I'm not so sure. AI does scare me a little bit. Um, particularly, I've been reading up recently about deep fakes, which I'd never even heard of until recently, and how your face can be manipulated um, and voices can be manipulated to make it sound and look like you're saying something completely different. So I think that kind of thing scares me, but it's not necessarily the AI, it's the people behind it. I think after reading your book, if people don't already take, uh, whenever they hear the warning, oh, it, it can't be hacked with a grain of salt, you know, then there, there might be not any hope for them. <laughs> <laughs> would, has it put you? Would you put you off going in a driverless car? Ah, I don't. I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm with you in thinking that it would be really easy, but at the same time, there's just you know the handing over control is going to be very hard. Yeah. I don't actually own a car. I ride mass transit everywhere. So I guess I already have yeah, handed over it, control. <laughs> well, my partner and I were in, um, we did a road trip last year around California. So we drove from 
Los Angeles up to San Francisco and taking in lots of the sites and country parks and areas in between. And I don't think that would have been the same if it had been in a driverless car. We hired a Jeep and it was just much more fun being in control and driving this vehicle across all these different terrains rather than having someone do it for you. I think we need to stick with those, uh, or what are they, level threes, where they still have a steering wheel and yes. the brakes so you can take over? Yeah, I think I think we'll, we might be a little bit happier if we get to that situation. <laughs> Which I think is similar to being in a Tesla, isn't it? My friend has one, and occasionally we've been out and he'll put the car on, um, on auto, and it, it's a weird sensation sitting there and he's got his hands just by his side and the car is doing everything for you. We had a story here just in the U.S. just last week where someone took video of someone who had fallen fast asleep behind a wheel of a Tesla on autopilot. Oh, no way. Yeah, and it, and it made pe- a lot of people really, really nervous. So I think that's, that's a sign. Yeah. Of, it's definitely a sign of things to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, driverless cars are coming whether we like it or not. And I, I just decided with this book to have a little fun with the dystopian side of things. Absolutely. I mean, this this is a, a thrill ride in every every sense of the of the phrase. Oh, thank you. But at the same time, I really felt myself disgusted with people and how easy it is to hide within the mob, especially when it comes to social media. Yeah, it doesn't paint social media in the greatest of lights. Um, I do use social media a lot, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I tend to I tend to steer clear of arguments or anything controversial because there's no point in having an argument with people that you don't know. Um, um, But yeah, it's it's a great place in some ways and in other places it's just a cesspit, it really is. I'm noticing a trend in, in thriller books where the you know they're taking on social media in the sense that you know everybody puts their lives out there, but at the same time there might come a point where you don't want all that information about yourself out in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have I have now have two Facebook accounts, so one for myself and one for the the writer side of me. But and, and the same with Instagram, but I didn't do that for Twitter. So I just kind of have to be careful about how much so I put myself out there and how you know, under my own name and what I put under under the author side of things. Now you mentioned that you decided to take the dystopian approach to this impending technology. Do you think there's a way to do it correctly so we don't end up in the world that you created? <laughs> yeah, I think there is. I think there's just, um, I think that the world just needs a bit of heart and a little bit of soul sometimes. And that might be a really Mary Poppins way of thinking about it. I think sometimes we just need to take our foot off the accelerator and slow down and think about what we're doing and think about the purpose for which we're developing all this technology um, it's always going to fall into the wrong hands at some point, isn't it? That's just that's just the way of the world, unfortunately. The story seems tailor-made for the big screen. Have you had any bites yet? Um, no, not yet. I mean, we've had a few little bits of interest from production companies, but but nothing confirmed yet. My One of my other books, um, The One, um, starts filming soon for a Netflix series, so I'm kind of excited about that. I don't have anything to do with it. Um, it's completely out of my hands, and I think... I think I took that one as far as I could take it. And now it's up to somebody else to see what they can do with it. I'm really excited to see see what they do to that. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what they could do with The Passengers if someone was interested in that. I, I think it, it feels quite cinematic when I was writing it. I could visualize that probably more than any other book that I've written. And the one, that's the DNA matched storyline? Yes. Yes, so the, that's right, yeah. And you brought a little bit of that into The Passengers. 
well spotted. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's all under the same kind of umbrella. But it's one of these, you don't have to read one to read the other. It's, it's only a few paragraphs. and I think it appears in a couple of different places. But yeah, yeah. So I guess the biggest question I have for you is, do you have a favorite of all the passengers? Who would you have let live? Who would I have let live? I think it would have to be, um, let me think. I would have to be the, yeah, Claire, the pregnant girl. Um, but my favorite one to write was um, Sophia. She's a British actress in her, probably in her early 70s. Um, I, I, I had really good fun writing her. She was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think there just needed to be a little bit of light in a, in a, in a rather darkened room with her. I mean, again, you know, she doesn't have the, the, the happiest of storylines as it goes on, but I quite liked, you know, I quite liked her initial story. It's quite good fun. No, it, it, I think it, it brought the brevity that you needed to what was really could. I mean, it, it's dark and it goes there. But to she she just made me laugh every time she had, you know, a scene in the book. <laughs> well, I used to be a journalist um, and my job over here was interviewing various celebrities. And I can't say who she was based on, but she was based exactly on one particular character who was, who was pretty, uh, an English actress who's known worldwide. Oh, I think you might have sent people now to the Internet after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off air. <laughs> All right. Well, we've been talking with John Mars. The book is The Passengers. Thank you so much for spending some time to talking to us about it today. No, thank you. Have a lovely day. So John did tell me off air who the real life inspiration behind Sophia was, but I won't tell. Fans of thriller writer Karen Slaughter are familiar with the dark depths she enjoys exploring and exploiting. Her latest book, The Last Widow, is no exception, and its timely domestic terror white supremacy plot takes readers along for an adrenaline-fueled and blood-spattered ride. She recently spoke with our Pat Farnack. The catalysts for your book are are all around us. I was amazed how how timely your book is. Anything in particular inspired you to write The Last Widow? Well, actually, you know, I got the idea for this about four years ago, and oh. I wrote the book last year. Mm. Um, so I, I was just seeing things that were going on and talking to a lot of people in law enforcement. And I always say to, to my guys and, and women I speak with, especially if they're at a federal agency, hey, what's the one thing you think that is going to be really bad in, in the coming years? And every single one of them, including folks at the Atlanta Police Department, said domestic terrorism. Uh, we're really afraid of our own people turning against us. There's a lot of hatred going on. A lot of people feel validated now in their hatred and their division, and this is going to be just a powder keg. And, you know, they were absolutely right. And especially lately, it seems like you wrote this last month rather than got the idea four years ago. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it just keeps happening as well. I mean, there's nothing I can write about that isn't happening at the moment. And, you know, one of the things that that crime writers worry about the most is, you know, oh, my gosh, am I going to write something and it's actually going to happen? But the world is so crazy right now that most of us have just thrown up our hands and said we can only write what we can write. You know, we just know something bad will happen eventually. Give us a, a sketch of your story. Let's begin that way. Well, you know, it's a, in in my uh, series, my Will Trent series, but I write the books so you don't have to have read every single mm-hmm. Will Trent book before to understand where they are. And, 
you know, for me, every story begins with character. And I have Will Trent, who's a Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent, and Sarah Linton, who is a coroner, a medical examiner. Mm -hmm. uh, And they together, uh, you know, end up being put in really bad situations just by coincidence when I write about them. Uh, And in this situation, they're having a typical uh, Sunday afternoon. He's cutting the grass. She's waiting for her mother to fix them their Sunday dinner, and they hear an explosion. And because they're both involved with law enforcement and with helping people, they go toward the explosion, which is what our first responders always do. Uh, And something really horrible subsequently happens. You talk in your book about uh, new Nazis, and the chilling thing about these new Nazis and these paramilitary guys is that they blend in a lot better than they used to, and you mentioned that some of them wear khakis and polos. Yeah, well, you know, people look at Charlottesville as an outlier, but that was heavily coordinated by white supremacist groups. You know, they came from 30 states. It didn't just happen that they all wore the same thing, Mm. Uh, and that's pretty much the uniform now. You know, I'm, I'm going to guess that you're around my age, and when yes. we were growing up, people who were white supremacists or Nazis identified themselves. You know, mm-hmm. they had tattoos, or they shaved their heads a certain way, or wore certain clothing, and now they want to blend in. They want to be in law enforcement. They want to be in the military. So this is heavily coordinated. Um, you know, people talk about lone wolves, but these lone wolves, very much like Timothy McVeigh, are connected to networks that have tentacles that go everywhere from Charlottesville to Charleston to Christchurch and back again. I mean, there's very highly organized groups, and people in law enforcement know that, and they're they're not terrified uh, because I think if, if they just sat around being terrified, they wouldn't be able to do anything, but they are actively monitoring these folks. It was also interesting that in some of these these groups, they're off the grid. Some are former military with an axe to grind, and some are, are, are young, and they just seem in search of something, excitement, or and some of them are, are so young and naive, it's almost pathetic. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a very little daylight between our homegrown terrorists and foreign terrorists. You know, they're sold this bill of goods about how they're going to get all the women, and they're going to get glory, and, you know, they they are missing... a a sense of community, which is very strange because many of them come from very solid families. You know, they're they're living with their their parents or they're close to their extended families, but they have access to the Internet. And Mm. through the Internet, you know, a lot of them start out thinking it's a joke, you know, who could be the most racist, who could be the most sexist. And eventually they start believing what they're saying, because they're in an echo chamber. And, you know, it's really shocking as someone who's not a part of that, especially as a woman, to read some of the things that they say, because they post openly about how they feel. And oddly, not a lot of white supremacists are feminists. You know, they see the woman's role as (laughs) subservient to them. The hate is what's so hard to accept. Did it feel good once the book was finished to step away from that? Or are you onto something just as as dark? <laughs> well, I've written about these groups before, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's important to understand 
what they're doing. Because a lot of, like I mentioned earlier, with Charlottesville, a lot of people thought, hey, wow, that's so weird. They all ended up being there wearing the same thing and all carrying uh, Pier 1 tiki torches. I mean, mm. we need to start paying attention to how coordinated these things are and that the fact that the Christchurch killer uh, murderer refers back to things happening in the United States and people in the United States refer to what happened in Norway. And the thing is, there there are a lot of people who want to top each other. You know, this is how they achieve infamy. And being young men whose brains aren't highly developed at that point in their lives, mm. they see they don't see the consequences of their actions. Um, and I think that this will continue to happen. I mean, I mean, honestly, we know it started in the Obama era um, because a lot of people in the white power movement were extremely furious that a black man was president. Uh, and it's just gotten worse. And it will, I believe it will continue to get worse as we have these divisions. So, you know, if people are saying, how can we stop this? It's, it's to stop being so vitriolic in our disagreements. You know, I, I when I was growing up, my father was the only Democrat in the neighborhood. Everybody else was Republican. And they looked at him the same way they would look at someone who didn't support UGA football. You know, some, well, something's wrong with that fellow, but we can yeah. still have a beer with him. And I think that we need to get back to that because we're not enemies. We're all Americans. The title, The Last Widow, was intriguing. Where did that come from? That's really something to do with Sarah, uh, my character I've been writing about for a while now. She lost her husband uh, uh, several books ago, yes. uh, and I, I got a lot of flack for that as the writer, as the person <laughs> who was responsible for his death. But I wanted the challenge to write about someone recovering from a great loss, and you know that opportunity presented itself, so that's something that I wanted to focus on. And, and for me, Sarah is at the point now where she's ready to move on. Um, but the, the specific reference is she lost her husband, who was a police officer, and the, the man who calls her the last widow is saying, oh, well, we'll not have any police officers ever murdered again once white people are in charge, as if white people aren't incredibly violent on their own. Right. Also, bacterial warfare and uh, botulism is a big part of the story, and I'm almost afraid to ask you about this and how real it can be. Well, I talked to the people at the CDC who are infectious disease experts, uh, and that's headquartered in Atlanta. So, you know, I was really it was really cool to go and see everything because it's an incredibly secure compound, and just getting on there it was really difficult. You know, I had to go through all this sort of scrutiny Mm. to be cleared to go into the CDC compound. Um, So in one regard, it made me really happy that they're there and they're they're so careful. But also, since it's very close to my own neighborhood, I was sort of freaked out because of the (laughs) stuff they keep there. Um, But I I talked to them because I said, look, I want to write about this, but I want to make sure it's not something that a bad actor can duplicate. And so I was really careful about what I did. Um, but, yeah, it's it's something that would be and, – and we figured out a way to write about it so that it's not even something that would be possible in the real world. Uh, but it was important for me to have that feeling of realism because you can see people doing things like this because sometimes people are just horrible human beings. 
finally, there was a lot of hate coursing through your book, but there was love, too, especially between Will and Sarah. Well, I think it's important when you're writing a thriller, especially I write very realistic thrillers, to make sure that it's not this unrelenting darkness, because, you know, even as on the worst day in American history, which hopefully we have already seen that many times, mm. there's always hope. There's always the feeling that people are going to go on. And that's one thing I think that, that terrorists try to take from us. You know, if you, if you look at El Paso, as horrific as that shooting was, it brought people together. It made the community stronger. So if you're a terrorist and your point is to disrupt society, and a lot of these guys are heavily into Charles Manson or Timothy McVeigh because they think they're going to bring about a race war. Uh, and that it's finally going to wipe out all the other races uh, except for white. I guess they don't realize that we're vastly outnumbered when you throw in the Middle East and Asia. Um, but every day people get up, they still go to their jobs, they still you know, have breakfast with their families, they still go to school, they still live their lives. So terrorism as a way to change society is very ineffective. Uh, and it most of the time will have the opposite effect of what the terrorist intends. Uh, so I would say that we just need to do what we always do, not just as Americans, but as you know, people in the world, is that we, we believe that everything will always get better. And for the most part, it does. Can fake news ever be a good thing? This day and age, not really. But for several weeks in 1943, it was. That's when a group of misfit Nazi resistors in Belgium came together to pull off the ultimate joke, a fake newspaper that poked fun at their German occupiers. Their accomplishment is the subject of the new novel, The Ventriloquists. I chatted with author E.R. Ramzapur about the incredible true story. How did you first stumble across the story of Fossoir? So I first came across the story when I was doing some research back when I was in college at Berkeley for a paper that I was working on, on underground literature. And I came across this document that was written by five women um, who worked for the U.S. War Office after World War II. And it was kind of this comprehensive analysis of how underground literature was used by various resistance movements. But I stumbled across this part about Belgium that mentioned in this really offhand, matter-of-fact way that this ragtag group of Belgian resistance fighters wrote, printed, and distributed a satirical Nazi newspaper in under three weeks. And my mind was just blown. I had never heard of this before, and this didn't seem to fit into the picture of resistance that I had in my head from sitting through the same history classes that I'm sure most people have. Um, and I knew that I had to write about it. So you're starting to do all this research and, you, you know, when did you really realize this was going to be a compelling novel? Pretty early on. Yeah, I knew this felt like a very cinematic story to me. Um, the way I, I've been describing the book is Ocean's Eleven meets all the light we cannot see. <laughs> because when I was reading about this, these sort of misfits who came from all walks of life um, and got together for the purpose of putting this newspaper together, it sort of did have this very Ocean's Eleven feel to it. Um, and some of the strange, like, little capers and schemes that they had to put together to pull this off under the Germans' noses does feel like a really good um, twisty caper story that you might see, you know, in a movie. 
And so I knew this would make a really fun novel. So like all good historical fiction, you blend the truth with your imagination. Which characters in your cast of ventriloquists are real? Which of the capers are real? Which are made up? Yeah, one of the challenges actually that I ran into while I was trying to attract an agent and then get the book sold is that many of the events in the book are so unbelievable that people just refuse to believe that they actually happen. But those are not things that I made up at all. Like wow. those, those things actually happen. To give you an example of that, and then I'll get into the characters a little bit. Um, there's one point at which these characters who are just, you know, ordinary people, just like you and me, actually convince the Royal Air Force to bomb Belgium. And not just to bomb Belgium, but to bomb it a little bit, just enough that it provides a distraction. And these normal everyday people were able to pull this off. And nobody believes that that was the case, but we, this is a well-documented incident. In terms of which among the characters were real, um, the main architect of the scheme was a man named Mark Aubryon, and he's a he's character in the book and a real person. And we know that he was a really minor journalist at a resistance newspaper, and people kind of described him as this brilliant but scatterbrained guy who wrote the newspaper in this excited fury. And we also know that he was aided by a young kid who stayed by his side for most of the, uh, the caper. And we also know that they're, um, they were able to raise money for this extraordinary venture um, because they had the help of a woman who was either a judge or a barrister. I've seen it both ways. And she was kind of known as this puppet master who was able to manipulate Nazi bureaucracy to get things done. And she raised tens of thousands of francs so they could pull off this scheme. So the novel is peppered with all these real characters, the saboteur, uh, the director of the press department. It was really interesting to play with them in that way. And what's really cool, too, is that all the references in your book of what was published in Fossoir are actually real. These are the things that showed up in the satirical newspaper, right? Exactly. Yeah, I actually have a, co a couple of copies of the newspaper myself. So I was able to get some translations of those and put those real jokes in the newspaper. And they're so funny. Even today, they're just ridiculously funny. They're so absurd. And I was just, I'm struck by how hilarious this is. And just the audacity of some of these jokes in there, too. Um, like the people who are writing these must have known that they were doing it under threat of, of death. And they have fake obituaries in this newspaper that are just so funny. And I can't even fathom that kind of audacity. Yeah, it's it's gallows humor. But at the same time, you know, it's when you really think about these stories and what they printed, it was something nobody else was doing. And, you know, there's that whole caper about getting a photograph of Hitler. And that ends up being one of the funnier things in this newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I just, you know, the, the thing about these people that, that was so intriguing to me and I had this it was sort of top of mind for me when I was writing this book is that they were essentially agreeing to die for a joke. And so I wanted to stay true to how funny the paper is. So I wrote this novel as being kind of light. There's this Charlie Chaplin-esque quality to it. It is quite funny. Um, but I also wanted to drive home that the stakes were really high. They knew that there really was a huge, uh, a big chance that they wouldn't make it out of this alive. I think also, you know, reading the, the novel, you can't help but also be struck that you're kind of turning around the current definition of what fake news is. You're taking it back. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and this I, this novel, I, I started writing it before the 2016 election when fake news sort of became a buzz phrase. And I accidentally ended up writing a timely novel, which is, you know, unfortunate <laughs> because I, I wish fake news weren't as timely a topic. But I'm, I'm hoping readers will come away um, with a more nuanced and complicated idea of the line between reality and propaganda. And, you know, we have this idea of fake news today as something that's exclusively perpetrated by the bad guys. But in the ventriloquist, it's actually the good guys who are producing the fake news. Um, and I just really love the way that the book plays with these different ideas. And I'm hoping um, readers will sort of interrogate these ideas for themselves. I love the sentiment. It comes towards the end of the book. I wrote it down here. The only way to deal with the absurdity of evil is with equal and opposite absurdity. Yeah, I one of the, the central themes of this novel, I think, is just reacting to how nonsensical life must have been for them by just creating some some nonsense, some humor. But humor, I, I was really struck in, in researching for this book and, and thinking about these characters by how powerful a joke can be. Um, I think fundamentally, The Ventriloquist is a novel about speaking truth to power which happens to be a lot easier if the truth is funny. So we've been talking with E.R. Ramsapur. The new book is The Ventriloquist. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about this and also for bringing this incredible story to light. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, we'll find out if there's still sex in the city from author Candace Bushnell. If you aren't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books for more bookish content, photos, links to stories you might like. Until next time, happy reading. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.